Welcome to Movie Maker. I'm Tim Malloy, and today we have an interview about interviews. It's about to get real meta in here. Remember that word from the 90s? Meta? That was fun. David Shields is a very prolific author whose 23rd book, The Very Last Interview, is a pastiche or re-edit of the thousands of questions he's been asked in interviews over the last 40 years. It comes out in 2022. Director Nick Toady and screenwriter Rachel Kempf, who are married, adapted the book into a film that you can watch right now on MovieMaker.com, starring Chris Dubeck as Shields and Ashley Spillers as an interviewer, who delivers a searing series of questions that become a captivating monologue. So with that, here are David Shields and Nick Toady. Nick Toady and David Shields, welcome to Movie Maker. Very excited to talk to you about the very last interview, which is both a book coming out and a film that is already out, although the book predates the film. Can you tell me the origin of both of them and how they came to be? Sure. Go for it, Nick. You're, you're welcome to articulate it or I can, yeah, can, well, can come in after you. I don't know. Maybe it's funnier if I uh, explain the book and then David, you explain the movie, um, which is the opposite of what it should be. But yeah, so it, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but David essentially uh, had an idea to collect all of the questions that he's been asked over the past, what, 40 years of his professional writing career. Right. So every question in, in that he's been asked in an interview and that, but none of the answers and then basically arranged those questions and, you know, kind of remixed them and rewrote them as needed uh, so that they became essentially an autobiography. And uh, for me, it was a sort of, I'm a big fan of the, the author, Edouard LeVay, who wrote four really great, each one totally different in style experimental biographies. And uh, the very last interview book really reminded me of that type of approach to autobiography, which I'm really, really drawn to. And um, yeah, so, uh, so, so that was basically the book. And I'll let David explain how the movie uh, came about. Right. And just, yeah, I think what Nick said is really good. I mean, Edward Livia, they, they tend to be these rather harrowing self-interrogations. He ended up committing suicide and it's not just autobiography or experimental autobiography that I'm interested in and most of the writers I'm interested in, but it becomes a kind of, for lack of a better term, kind of like this existential interrogation in which you ask yourself the most harrowing questions you can. And in that way, you create it, you hope a platform for the reader to ask himself or herself similarly challenging and difficult and essential questions. <clears throat> just also too on the book, I would just say that, you know, it's, you know, I sort of I've gathered all the questions. Maybe I think, I think I was asked 2,700 questions in various media over almost 40 years. And I think it wasn't just, of course, a compilation, but, a, you know, a severe curation and collation and edit so that the, the final book, which isn't coming out for a full year, yeah, uh, March 2022 with NYRB, uh, New York Review Books, um, you know, becomes 22 chapters, very brief chapters, each one, I hope, taking new and more, you might say, harrowing ground in a kind of 
what would you call a kind of a late middle age self interrogation asking myself, you know, what I've accomplished in my life and what I haven't, what my art has accomplished and what it hasn't, et cetera, et cetera. So anyway, that's the book, which, uh, it, you know, and then the film, let's see, the Nick and I have some mutual friends. I'm a fan of Nick's films and trying to think of how at some point I had finished the book in, in my rather whimsical and sort of of random way, I just emailed Nick and say, I have this book. Do you want to shoot it as a movie? And he basically just wrote back like all my favorite people do. He just said, yeah, of course, let's shoot it, you know? And so then I didn't know what I was up for. And so, you know, I just, I just do love, I think one thing that Nick and I share among many things is, as Nick says, that most of the film world is organized around the idea of how can we say no? And what Nick and I are organized around is like, how can we do this yesterday? Yeah. You know, and like that just interests the hell out of me and just drives me crazy as, you know, we haven't gotten an A plus actor. So therefore your brilliant script is not being, being done. It's like, I am so not interested in that. I'm interested in getting books and films done and out and moving on and, and staying alive through the creative act. So anyway, Nick liked the book, I think, maybe more than I do. <laughs> and then he is married to an awfully talented uh, screenwriter named Rachel Kempf. And she, maybe with a little bit of Nick's participation, but I think primarily on her own, she took my 110-page manuscript, quite short, it's only perhaps 17,000 words. And Rachel, I know there are very few lines that are hers per se, perhaps a few, but essentially it's my book radically edited down to a 27 page script or something like that, 22, 28, something like that. <clears throat> but in her editing down, she took a kind of quietly melancholy book and turned it into this really, harrowing sort of hellscape of, you know, this sort of psychological, you know, there's a quiet thread of suicide in the book, but in the film, it becomes really manifest as this character sort of loosely based on me, uh, contemplates very difficult questions. And then the very lucky break that we got on the film, which I think all good films have get these lucky breaks where that Nick was you know, he works with these two excellent actors and he, I think had, what would you call it? Rented an Airbnb, I don't know what you call it, you know, uh, for a day or two. Yeah. And Nick had, you know, all of his background had, had taught him to be alert to environment. So the Airbnb had some Christmas decorations in it. And at first those annoyed Nick, but instead of course, he leaned into his aggravation and said, oh my goodness, Here's this character who's a secular Jew, but is asking himself difficult questions about existence. Yeah. When are we most sad? Well, often around the holidays, of course, if we're not happily ensconced in, you know, the family hearth or whatever. And so quite brilliantly, I think Nick used those Christmas decorations. There's a bit of a Christmas song, isn't there, Nick? I forget what the 
you know, there's a Christmas song. There's the brilliant thing of the Christmas lights going on and off, which feels very much like, is he going to live or is he going to enter into a suicidal mode? I mean, I must admit, I can barely watch the film. It's so, it's so nervous making and discomforting and powerful and emotionally raw. So anyway, I approached Nick. Nick was up for it. He worked with his, his screenwriter wife, Rachel. They came up with this beautiful script. Then we lucked in to Nick's smartness to see the environment of Christmas is this beautiful way to deepen the emotional edge of it. And then weirdly that we released, you know, that we went from me emailing Nick on, I don't know, on one day and probably a month later or so, we released it on Vimeo. It's, it's, it's a perfect model of how all of us should create, especially perhaps during COVID. Yeah, and there's a ferocious bit of drama in there that you haven't mentioned yet. And I don't, I'm not gonna reveal this because it's kind of a uh, cliffhanger throughout the movie. We don't know whether the David Shields character is ever going to answer a question. I mean, he's <laughs> interrogated by this woman who has some, a curious agenda of her own who seems to also perhaps be in some pain. That's a really smart reading of her. Like, what are her issues that she, that's a fascinating point, Tim. Can you talk about that? I mean, I hadn't thought about that. Her, I think that um, Ashley's performance is crucial and that she's, she not only has an agenda, I think she has many agendas, journalistic, romantic, therapeutic, punitive. It's not clear sort of what her agenda is. She has many hats she wears. But that's so interesting, Tim, that you think of her as struggling too. How so? Having been an interviewer and an occasional unsuccessful creator, um, I think there's a lot of interviewers who have, who sort of see the interview as their chance to score or get revenge. Um, You know, I'm smarter than this filmmaker I'm interviewing. I should be the one making the movies. Let me, you know, prove my value by making them look silly. And I don't know if she's going that far, if she's even conscious of it, but I, I do feel like she's kind, kind of trying to score. And do you feel like you have been in interviews with people who are trying to score? I mean, that's the whole origin of the book. I mean, that's great. I mean, score in many ways, whether romantic or there's this great line that all comedy consists of trying to pull Socrates off of his pedestal. You know, (laughs) it's just pulling people down is the essential comedic impulse, you know, and I'm not Socrates, but, you know, it's like all comedy consists of showing that the tyrant slips on a banana peel or whatever. That's funny when we see a dignified person walk into a bulldozer and something like that is like, you know, the way that Chris performs some version of me, he's dressed in a rather sort of middle-class way. And he's sort of a little pompous, a little self-important, a little dignified. And her whole thing is to almost like a cat, you know, take her claws and just scratch her nails into him and see what happens. It's a really, it's a cat and mouse SM. There's a little BDSM stuff going on. It's really intense. 
I think. And it's a, a remarkable performance by both of them. And it's, I mean, I think you're right. She wants to take him down. And so much of the origin of the book, as I, I read through hundreds of pages of interviews, just the dynamic energy, the perverse dialectic between interviewer and interviewee has fascinated me for a very long time. You mentioned people trying to score um, in every sense. Usually when I'm on an interview with someone, I'm trying to make it extremely clear that I'm not trying to, you know, and I've been doing this for 20 odd years. I'm always trying to not seem flirtatious in any way because it's, it, it grosses me out. Like reporters, sure. that line grosses me out. And when I hear about like this reporter interviewed this person and then they started dating, I think it always makes all reporters look bad. Have you been in that situation? Does that actually happen or is that just a fictional? I mean, it's obviously not fictional because it happens in real life, but is that as common as I think it isn't? <laughs> That's a great, I, mean, I think we're gonna have to add that question to the movie and the book, Nick. Is it as common as I think that it isn't? That's fantastic, Tim. But um, <laughs> um, let me think. I mean, again, I, I wouldn't, I think anything I say will, will be used against me, but I think, well, I'm trying to think what to say. I just think it's an inherently fraught moment, whether it's two guys or two women or a man and a woman or whatever, but I'm trying to think. I mean, it's an inherently a seduction. You know, a lot of people have written well about this, whether it's Oriana Felucci or Janet Malcolm or Joan Didion or whatever. It's inherently a seduction uh, on an intellectual level, <clears throat> a pedagogical level, a journalistic level, a financial level. And occasionally it has a sexual element for sure. And, you know, yeah, I mean, there, I mean, I don't know what to say. I mean, I'm not sure how much gossip. Um, yeah. So I was going to say that just from like steering it back to the movie, I can speak, I can't speak to what happens in real interviews so much as I can speak to what happened in working with Ashley and uh, developing her character as the, as the interviewer. And, and also a little bit to Rachel's writing of the screenplay where I know that for Rachel uh, and David was kind of surprised to hear this, but for Rachel, she basically uh, as far as like character arcs go or whatever, she was really honed in on the interviewer character much more than the David character. Yeah. So she was thinking, how do I arrange these questions in a way that there, it has the ebb and flow of, you know, a standard-ish kind of screenplay structure. Um, and, and so thinking about what's motivating this character. As, and then David's, the David character is sort of just responding and having his own uh, internal crisis that that was sort of also developed just with by the actor um, based on some, you know, signposts from the script. But, but as far as Ashley's character as the interviewer, you know, we talked a lot about her and I talked a lot about um, because I also make documentaries. So I've got my own uh, it's a, it's a different sort of interviewing than straight journalism uh, where one of the things I told her and, and as, ostensibly her character is some sort of documentarian, you know, she's there video recording this conversation for, 
we don't really know what for. Um, but one of the things I talked with her about was that for me, when I'm interviewing somebody for a documentary, I'm basically, my headspace is entirely, what can I do to get the best performance out of this person? So if the person requires somebody to have high energy and talking with them in order to get high energy responses, then I give them high energy, you know? And if the person is feeling a bit more introspective, you know, I try and meet them on that level. So basically I'm, I'm a complete slut whenever I'm in doing an interview where I'm just like, whatever you need from me, I'm going to give it to you. I have zero integrity. I don't, I don't try and put myself forward at all in any way as a personality. I'm simply trying to like be salt on top of whatever that person is to bring extra flavor out of them. And so I told Ashley that, and that kind of clicked for her where it was just like, She's just constantly shifting tactics. And because she basically has, I think she has one goal and her goal is I'm going to get this guy to say something. Yeah. And she has to shift every three questions because it's not working. And when she thinks something might work, she then leans into it. And then whenever it doesn't, she pivots and changes tactics. And, and in doing that, she does end up kind of revealing things about her own character, you know, you get a sense of maybe a little bit of her sadism that might mostly lie under the surface. Uh, maybe she, I think there is a point where she thinks maybe I can't get him to respond in words, but maybe I can get him to jump out that window. And then whenever she starts leaning into that, she then gets maybe a little scared of herself and pulls back from that. Cause she didn't like where she went psychologically or something. So, um, but yeah, so those, those were the kinds of things that we were talking about, um, you know, behind the scenes on it. And then Tim, did you feel at the end a little bit of, you know, the, it, it was such a delicate thing to get at the end. So it wasn't a total downer. Curious if you as a, as a, a film watcher and a film critic, you know, felt like the end, there's a little bit of, a thong of the ice so that there's this kind of rapprochement between the two of them. And there's a sense that he is, in a way, it's a Christmas resurrection film where he has gone to the bottom of his soul. But at the end, without making it too sentimental, there's a little bit of an uptick at the end where there's a tiny suggestion that maybe, I guess I'm giving away the ending, but you know that he, he smiles a bit and there's a slight suggestion that the two of them might go out for coffee or something like that. Well, yes, yeah, she- Did you I feel mean, that or not particularly? Oh yeah, I mean, if we are if we can talk about the ending and it's been up on moviemaker.com for a couple of weeks, so I don't feel like we're- No. Know, anything. Um, she flat out- Oh, and it's not exactly a whodunit either. You know, yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, she invites him, she asks him what he's doing later. Um, and I do think that for her, she's kind of going through, they've kind of gone through this to use a horrible cliche trial by fire together, where I think he's enjoyed the flagellation and he's enjoyed the introspection and maybe beating himself up a little bit or being beaten up by her. And I think she's, you know, clearly is younger and probably trying to make a name for herself by um, scoring again, by getting something out of him. And they both feel like, yeah, we had a good game. Um, that's a nice way to say it. It's like, you know, this was not one more boring interview. Like, I think that's what the very last interview goes to, either as a book or as a film. It's like, can we please not have this just be one more anodyne interview in which you have your three by five cards, I have three, have my three by five cards, 
and over 42 minutes that we share our talking points, obviously the overwhelming majority of interviews with, I mean, I'm fascinated by, you know, politicians on talk shows. They just will not get off their talking points. Athletes <clears throat> after the game, <clears throat> movie uh, <clears throat> actors on talk shows promoting their film. I mean, there's no point to it whatsoever. No one is being real. And so, so much so that if anyone says something slightly real, there's a big crisis. Like, oh my God, he said the director once had a tantrum or whatever. It's like, of course the director had a tantrum. He had a tantrum every day on the set. And so anyway, the idea of the very last interview was what happened if we were really real? I mean, that's a big, a big word for me. It's a meaningless word, but the idea of realness in art and life is really important to me. Yeah, you know, I've been, I mean, I do interviews for this podcast and one reason I like putting the interviews out there, we could just as easily do them as print stories is I like people to hear the pauses and I like people to hear how we got to a certain point and to have like the authentic exchange as opposed to the moment where the person says the seemingly ridiculous thing that gets pulled out of context and, you know, turned into a headline. Um, I, my agenda, and not that you asked, <laughs> but my agenda is to be as agendaless as possible because I'm honestly sick of the school of interviewing where it's exactly as you described. We'll try this for three questions. And if that doesn't work, we'll switch to something else. And I'm going to keep pressing you. And I absolutely hate the interview where they go, are you going to run for president? I don't know. Maybe, maybe. Are you thinking about it? Maybe. What about, what would, if you did, what would your campaign be? Like where they've just like forced them to say a thing that they definitely did not intend to say. I know. It's, those are the worst. And I mean, every form has it. The author interviews, I can't hear. Someone's dutifully promoting their not terribly stunning book, athlete interviews, celebrity interviews. <laughs> I mean, everyone has its very specific codification and it's so interesting to me, like athlete interviews are am amazing. Like Horrible. has an athlete ever said anything real ever in a post game interview? Like, no. And so, I mean, it's really interesting. Yeah. Like, the boredom is interesting. Like it's really, really interesting. I mean, their discipline extends to the moment after the game where they have to say everybody gave a hundred percent, hundred percent. It's amazing. I mean, that's why they're good at sports. Like they're, they're disciplined. Exactly. I'm waiting it's for what... you where, where a reporter will just tell a politician, listen, you sound like you're working in a fast food restaurant, reading the script that you've been assigned or like a telemarketer. This is ridiculous. I just asked you something and you repeated the same thing you said before. This is bullshit, which for some reason they never do. I know I so much want them to do that. And, you know, <clears throat> you know, it, it, I mean, it is what, what my film Lynch, a history is about, which is this athlete, Marshawn Lynch, who refused to answer reporters questions, partly because the questions are so boring, but partly because as an African American athlete born and raised in Oakland, he was very aware of the ways in which kind of a white corporate grammar was being imposed on his post game psyche and he's just like i am not going to be your ventriloquized puppet like i am not doing that yeah. and there's an odd eloquence and cultural power to what 
he did. So I'm obviously very interested in the interview form, whether it's my book, I Think You're Totally Wrong, A Quarrel, which became a film where I argue with my former student. Nick's film with Jarrett Kobeck is very much an interview film. His film with, um, I always forget the name, Nick, of that Baltimore-based Baltimore writer that you did. Oh, Megan Boyle? Yeah, with the, the Megan Boyle, sort of an interview film. Um, I did a book called That Thing You Do With Your Mouth, Sexual Autobiography of Samantha Matthews, which is sort of an interview I did with my a distant relative. Um, I'm just so fascinated by the form from Socrates and Plato all the way up to say, you know, car talk and beyond. Like the two, the idea of two people locked in mortal combat, if that's sort of, you know, I just love that thing. It's just deep in my psyche. Maybe it's deep in all of our psyches, the, the war of, of words that really interests me a lot. I just find it psychologically thrilling. Yeah, I'm, I've been thinking about, you know, like working with you, David, I've been thinking more about my own history doing interviews for my movies and how there's this weird, you know, it's, and maybe this is just always the case, but like the interviews for each different movie have their own weird special flavor. And it could also just be because I'm so DIY that everything is going to have its own odd little personality. But like, I think most dramatically, if you look at Kill Kobeck Kill, my documentary with Jared Kobeck, um, the, those interviews are pretty, I think pretty unique to the documentary form because they're so conversational and because there's so much shit talking between me and Jared. Like half of the things that Jared says are basically insulting me as a filmmaker. <laughs> and I thought that that was really funny. So I just was like, I'm, I want to now kind of structure the movie around that as kind of the overarching joke is that this movie is kind of terrible. And so the movie is filled with Jared insulting himself, insulting me, me insulting Jared. And like that's sort of the, the, the through line of the movie is this kind of self-deprecation. Um, and then another thing that is, uh, a, a movie that I've been working on the past few years that's a documentary about a musician who lives in Milwaukee. His name is Sigmund Snowpeck III. Nobody has ever, there's like 10 people in the world who have been following this guy's 50 year long career. Um, but, uh, but he's got all of these kind of random people who he's crossed paths with that um, we've been trying to get interviews with, including like, Jay Leno is one person that I did an interview with, um, members of the Violent Femmes. Uh, I was supposed to interview members from the band Cheap Trick, but uh, then COVID happened. Um, Willem Dafoe has a connection with them. I haven't been able to get in contact with Willem Dafoe yet. But, but anyway, so there's these random people. And then there's like people he went to high school with, you know, just like random people that, at these bars in Milwaukee. And, but the thing for me that's been really entertaining about making this project is treating every single one of those interview subjects exactly the same. And so when I interviewed Jay Leno, uh, so, well, when I was interviewing people in Milwaukee, which is where Sigmund lives, um, all the interviews were just done in a hotel room where I blacked out the windows and set up my lights and, uh, and would just interview them in there. But when I interviewed like Jay Leno, 
I basically had to treat him exactly the same as I treated everybody else. So I went up to his garage in Burbank. And so basically, you know, you're talking like a low budget movie here suddenly is like production value that you couldn't dream of. You know, I've got his millions of dollars classic car collection that he's basically saying, you know, set up the shot anywhere you want. And, uh, but because I needed the shot to look like our interviews all have a very consistent look. I instead went to a broom closet, set up my lights in there and then had Jay Leno sit in this dusty broom closet where I asked him questions about a musician nobody's ever heard of for 25 minutes. And, uh, and so, so it's like, for me, there's always these weird little joys that are to be found in, in how you conduct the interviews for the movies, because yeah, I don't know, maybe that's only, only for my pleasure, but you know, I, I, I got a perverse thrill out of it. Is that a score though? Is that putting Jay Leno back on his heels? Um, you're gonna sit in a closet and answer questions. <laughs> That's a really good point that it it's bringing Socrates off of his pedestal from his his multi-million dollar car collection to your one more custodian in the broom closet. I mean, why was he being interviewed? Does he have a, a secret love of this musician or what? Oh, it's it's uh, basically they um, they crossed paths a number of times back in the eighties um, when yeah, it was kind of late seventies, early eighties was sort of a peak in Sigmund Snowpack's career, um, particularly in Milwaukee. And they have a music festival called Summerfest that at that time they were also doing, they had a, a comedy stage at their music festival. And so Jay Leno was kind of, his star was rising. And so he was getting, uh, you know, these decent, well, the way he tells it, it was like the worst gig you ever could have worked because like having people walking by eating popcorn, you know, and like, uh, you know, like uh, corn dogs and <laughs> just like walking in in the middle of a joke and then like not staying and walking out. Like he was like, it's the worst possible environment for stand up comedy, but it was a decent paying gig. And, you know, he, so, so basically they would always cross paths at Summerfest and, um, and Leno, Sigmund told me he knew Jay Leno, but hadn't talked to him in decades. And I just sent Leno's agent an email. Uh, and, and, and then like that day, like two hours later, you know, Jay Leno called me and he was like, oh, Sigmund Snowpack, I haven't thought of that guy in years, you know, like, and so then we set it up and yeah. Wow. That's cute. That's a cute story. He's <laughs> retired. He's wealthy beyond our wildest dreams. And he just wants people to talk to and hang out with. That's a very adorable story. Yeah. Well, um, I mean, yeah, he, he just hangs out at his garage all day. Like, I think he just likes hanging out with the mechanics because like, that's what he wants to be doing. So yeah, he's, he, he, he like answers his own phones half the time. Yeah. He, he, he's a interesting, like, it's like he, he wants to be blue collar. <laughs> but like is you know has tens of millions of dollars so. right still was he wearing a denim an all denim outfit when you met yes yes he was wearing all denim yeah I love what it. is that a thing with with him that he wears denim now or something he's kind of yeah I, denim it's, on, denim that's like his uniform uh his retired uniform is that he just kind of wears all denim and hangs out in his massive airplane hanger I mean, it sounds like he's a skilled mechanic. He kind of grew up kind of lower 
sort of lower middle class blue collar in the Boston area. I think you can hear it in his accent. You know, he's a, I don't know if he's quite a Southie, but close, you know, he's just like a guy. And I think that's so interesting. And it's, it's so moving to me that he just wanted to talk. I mean, in a way he wanted an interview, like he wanted just the rub of human beings in contact with it. He had nothing to gain from it. He doesn't yeah. need to be in your movie. Right. But it's like just, you know, like it's sort of like the miracle of human beings talking. Like it's just, I can get very sentimental about it that, you know, no other animal on the planet, yes, of course, dolphins and whales and, and <laughs> chimps have a kind of, of communication, but, you know, human beings have spoken language. You know, it's just a miracle that we're all just talking. You know, partly because as a kid, I had a, a severe stutter. And I'm just very invested in the horror show and magic show of language. I just love it with all my heart and soul that I think the language is a joke and it's also the only thing that we have. And, um, you know, the whole just thrill of like, I'm a human being and you're a human being <clears throat> and we probably, probably don't understand each other that well, but you know, the language is the closest that, that we come. It's, it's really beautiful. You know, when you mentioned Jay Leno, I was thinking about Johnny Carson and Dick Cavett. And when you watch those old shows and people just have conversations that maybe they were scripted, but they don't feel scripted. And sometimes they're talking about crazy nonsense and sometimes they're drunk and they're great. I mean, they're great conversations, whatever they are. And a lot of the air and energy went out of them when they started pre-screening and setting up anecdotes and stuff like that. Maybe 80s, maybe 90s. I'm not sure when that all started. Um, and then you got this backlash to that where people have these very, um, very efforts to seem very spontaneous, like the Fallon thing of like, can we go, you know, throw eggs at the wall or something? Um, Which I find even, even worse. I mean, I, but it's, I'm sorry. I was just, I just wanted to go on a riff on, you know, yeah, so a Norman Mailer showing up on Cavett and just talking for 30 minutes about whatever. And, and it's just, but it's just heaven. Cause it's like, the lack of speed it's like we're just going to talk that we're smoking that we're drinking someone buckley and and mailer they might get in a fist fight like it's actually live television it's so i mean my god i mean it's easy to be sort of nostalgic about it but it's like because i very much <laughs> grew up there i mean i'm much older than you guys and it's sort of like i know it's just so but i think you captured it it well tim from relatively real interviews to scripted to now pseudo non-scripted and i don't know how we you could argue the very last interview is a kind of futile attempt to get back to something that's more real or something well i just wonder by calling it interviews are we making it more antagonistic that it needs to be. If you say conversation, I mean, every if you say like a conversation with Ariana Huffington, you know that's going to be like the most boring thing ever because it's going to be like a puffy, you know, you're great, you're great conversation. Um, so I don't know, is there some middle ground between conversation and interview that isn't an attack and isn't just a nonsense, you know, puffery session? And dialogue I, is a good word. I mean, you, you had on Errol... Errol Morris recently, right? I seem to recall. Wasn't me. You know, he's star, but yeah. Yeah, he was. He was. He was great. You. You were. Were great with him. And I think, 
his his all of its films. You think of the McNamara film, you think of the um, <clears throat> Steve Bannon film. I mean, a lot of his films, of course, are about an, a dialogue, and some of them, in my view, work like the McNamara film, and some films, in my view, don't. But he's at least having to have a converse, trying to have a conversation, and I think the failure of his of his Bannon film is fascinating where you know he's so invested in a good way in a non-combative interview that if someone is really skilled they can turn that to their advantage oh, i think yeah. that there's the it's really interesting that i think he he represents an interesting model i mean i'm a huge fan of his early films as is nick i think vernon florida gates of heaven those are just are magisterial films and um well, there's, I mean, he's a int very interesting model regarding a halfway house between uh, an amiable conversation and a confrontative, confrontational interview. I think he is a, a dialogic filmmaker. He, where he just sort of lets people talk, but then in the edit, he turns it into a thematized investigation. And at his best, like at the end of the McNamara film, in which you suddenly see McNamara's eyes fall and his entire guilt of a, a war is shown in McNamara's face, at least in my reading. And he has the whole, the whole, the whole movie reaches a higher plane. There's that idea that you have to be Anderson Cooper calling people out in real time during the interview. But if you look at the frontline interviews, which are amazing every episode of frontline is absolutely amazing and full disclosure i worked there in like a marketing capacity for six months years ago um but they just let people talk for three hours and they don't try to put words in their mouth and they don't try they try to find out what they actually thought like what were you actually thinking what were you actually doing not jumping them as they go and it's so much more revealing and people frequently hang themselves it's i don't know i just think it's a much more appealing approach not because people should hang themselves, but because I want to know what they actually think. I mean, that's the psychoanalytic model is just keep talking. And it's sort of Joan Didion's approach is that I just I just show up and let people talk. And if you let let people talk, I promise you, they'll tell you who they are. Yeah. I mean, what has been your approach, Nick? Because in a way, you've done three films on this, like in a way you've interviewed me, sorta. You, you did Jarrett, you did Megan. I mean, do you think of yourself as an interviewer in a way or, or more like you're allowing the, the writer to interview themselves or? Well, the the one with Megan, I, I didn't interview her at all for it. Cause it's, it, that's more like a performance documentary where it's just her right. reading her book, but, but the book's so autobiographical and in my opinion, anyway, you know, the movie's 25 hours long and uh, I, I get pretty, my camera interrogates her pretty thoroughly as she's reading this heavily autobiographical book. So in a way it almost feels like an interview. Um, but I, you know, I did also have, you know, I've got um, the, the complete history of Seattle, which is a documentary about the band raft of dead monkeys, where I interviewed all of the still living members of the band. Um, and that was a, those interviews were very, um, and the way they were cut together was very Errol Morris-esque, um, uh, uh, where like they're kind of speaking directly to the camera. You don't hear any of my questions. Um, 
And also there, are, there is one moment in it where you can see one of them have kind of that McNamara moment where he sort of is like, he's saying one thing and then almost realizes that this narrative he's been telling himself for years is kind of a little bit full of shit or might be. Um, but it's like there's just this little hint that it might, he might, he realizes he might have been lying to himself. Um, and and I, that's my favorite moment in that movie. Uh, but yeah, I've also got, um, David, you've seen Raw Dog Got a Raw Deal, an unreleased uh, documentary of mine where I basically interviewed a friend of mine who was two days away from dying. Um, I've got another one called Three Plus Three Plus Three Minus Two A Dog's Life, which is another kind of death interview movie where um, I interviewed this woman I'm friends with who had over the course of about six months, she had seven people in her life that she was close with die one after another in totally unrelated uh, ways. And, and including the very last one was that her grandma got attacked by a pack of stray dogs the day before Thanksgiving. It was this absolutely. And like, at that point I was like, her name's Molly. And I was like, Molly, your life has officially like, for me, I was like, your life has the setup of a, of a silent film gag where it's like one bad thing happens, then another bad thing happens and another bad thing happens. And it just keeps going and going and going. And then like, right when you think it can't get any worse, a boulder falls on top of Buster Keaton. And it, it was like, like the last thing transcends all the others and makes the, the tragedy effectively comedy. That sounds um, really good, I must say. Oh yeah, I'll send it to you. It's it's on Vimeo, but yeah, it's 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 also it's only ten minutes long. So um oh, and the the great thing about that one was that I interviewed her. I think literally two weeks after the death of her grandma, where basically I was like, let's get in there and do this while while the wounds are still fresh, because like the her and I we related to each other in we were coworkers. We worked at a preschool together. And she basically, she liked talking to me about her problems because everybody else treated her with kid gloves and, and I would shit talk with her and like, we, we would be like darkly humorous about it. And, and she liked that. She, she got, you know, this charge and this release from that. And so, so I could make really off color jokes about all these horrible things that were going on in her life. But but then she was talking about, she was like, I feel like I should write a book or something. And I was like, well, you should do that. But in the meantime, just sit down in front of my camera and I'll make a movie from it. And, uh, but yeah, so, so, so I've had was like, she good, was she good on camera, Nick? She, she's great on camera. And, and in fact, like, uh, it was funny at the, when I first got it, I thought that she was holding back too much because like, she basically, I think she didn't want to, say the really off color things and the kind of jokes we had been making because like she thought my family members might see this or whatever. So at first I thought that she was holding back too much and that it might not work. But then when I edited it, I was like, no, it's great. She's like just the right level of like self-deprecating. And um, yeah, she's got, yeah, she's great. She's, she's from Louisiana. She's got a little bit of an accent and like, you know, it's good. I just want to ask you guys if you've seen two things. The first is the Mr. Show sketch, the story of Everest. I don't remember it, but I've seen all of Mr. Show, but it's been a while. So okay. I don't recall. For different reasons, I feel like you would both appreciate it. It has like this incredible use of 
redundancy and also the thing you said about silent film disasters befalling you is it's 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 one of the funniest things I've ever seen. It's one of my the two favorite. Remind things. me of the I've seen some of of Mister's show, but I, w- would I know it if I had seen the Mister Everest episode? It's just a guy comes home from climbing Mount Everest, and then while telling the story of climbing Mount Everest, falls over and knocks over a thimble collection, and then knocks over the thimble collection. I think well many more times. Let me put it that way. And it's like the it's the just watch it. And the other thing is, have you seen uh, the Night Stalker documentary? Because when you mentioned good on camera, one of the things that struck me is how these survivors are incredibly good at telling their stories. And I, I would expect them to be rolled up in a ball and never want to talk about this ever again. And they're absolutely excellent on camera, which is a very strange skill to have. And not that's, a that's the spot. the brand new doc, right? Yeah, the, the Night Stalker talk. I mean, yeah. I'm thinking this thing of, I mean, a really important filmmaker to me is 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 Ross McElwee. And something that Ross says is, he's asked what makes a good documentary film subject, and he was talking about Charlene, who shows up in, in most of his films. And I I actually think after a while, her her role becomes maybe somewhat predictable as a kind of explainer of the movie but he said that I think he was saying Charlene is good that that she knows who she is she's comfortable with who she is and she's willing to extend her personality for dramatic effect Mm. you think that's such an insightful thing because someone was asking Ross you know what makes a good interview subject for a doc film and Ross really had it figured out that it's not just, oh, gee, they're smart or funny or they're vulnerable, but the specific thing of willing to extend your personality for dramatic effect. And I think I think it's exact to a degree, you could argue that's what Trump did, that he's, you know, I've written a book on Trump. I'm adapting the book into a film. I'm like almost bottomlessly obsessed and fascinated I mean, obviously in a critical way, but also just like a performance art way. I mean, he's a magisterial performer or was. And he really does, in a way, I would argue, takes his personality. He sort of is comfortable with who he is, sort of. I think he obviously hates himself in many ways. But then he is (laughs) hugely willing. Sorry? That's the title of the book, right? Nobody hates Trump more than Trump, an intervention, right? And I think... But then he does, I would argue, I don't know, it's, it's an open question. To what degree is he consciously extending his personality uh, day by day where like maybe a long time ago he was just you know, slightly racist and then 10 years later he suddenly you know, is waving a Confederate flag. It's like he just constantly, I don't know. He's a, I mean, again, it's a whole huge topic and one doesn't want to mitigate the disaster of the Republic, but he's an interesting example of someone who in a way is a fantastically riveting documentary subject. I mean, just look at how even say MSNBC, they barely show Biden. Trump is so much more interesting. He just, he's a riveting documentary subject you can be appalled or whatever but he's 
Joe Biden, <laughs> Joe Biden is not interesting on camera. He's almost intentionally boring. And Trump, through yeah. Howard Stern, through Roy Cohn, through New York tabloid, he's learned how to be, you know, the only crime is, is not, the only sin is not, the only sin is to be boring. And Trump, in some ghastly ways, has learned how to be always interesting, including burning down the country if he has to. So, yeah. See, so David, one thing I would disagree with there is that, you know, and I'm, I'm not a snob when it comes to like thinking, being above reality television or anything, but I would say Trump would not be a good documentary subject, but he is a good reality television subject. That's a good um, distinction. Yeah. That's a good distinction. Because, yeah. because for me, like, I, I don't really, I understand what, uh, what Ross McElwee is saying about his friend that shows up in many of his movies. Um, but you'll also notice that I think with the exception of one short film, she's never the subject of his movies. Um, she's, she's a supporting character who shows That's up. That's a really good point. And I think that, you know, I think, I mean, maybe that says enough that like those, those sort of people who are very sure of themselves and who they are and how to present themselves and how to sort of give the camera the love that the camera wants, they're, they're great. They're going to make your movie uh, sing a bit better. It's going to make it feel more lively and it's going to keep people's attention riveted of more than somebody who's just kind of you know to pull it back to the very last interview like somebody like uh chris portraying the character david shields who doesn't say a word and is just quietly introspective for 30 minutes you know that's the very opposite but i would almost say i don't i don't want to speak in too broad of terms but i think that's actually the kind of uh subject that i'm more drawn to uh now you know, if you can have a flashing, like the flashing Christmas tree in the background is my version of the, the, the sidekick who is the lovable person who, uh, you know, makes funny commentary and maybe occasionally has a pratfall. But um, but yeah, but like I, I liked the person who but I mean, also my my movies are, uh, I would say, notoriously unpopular, but there's no notoriety because they're unpopular enough that nobody's talking about them. But, well, yeah. this interview will change that forever. Hey, it's Tim Malloy again. Thank you for listening. Now for the second part of our show, Movie Maker host Eric Stoyer will interview me about interviewing David Shields and Nick Tony about past interviews. No, we're not really going to do that. Um, it would be fun, though, because Eric Stoyer is a fantastic interviewer, and he will be back on our next episode with another fantastic, fantastic interview, which is kind of his thing. He's really good at them. I love listening to them. I get excited for every new one. Uh, we're also at moviemaker.com. We have a magazine called Movie Maker Magazine. And we have a YouTube channel, which is also under Movie Maker. Branding around here is tight. All right, see you very soon. Thank you for listening. 